and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, also an editor-at-large. Hi, Medea. Hi, Kate. And this week, we're listening to an interview with Brian Dillon about his book, Suppose a Sentence. Yeah, in the introduction to the Brian Dillon interview, I'm a huge fan of his, so I was very excited to do it. I said that this was a good, old-fashioned, close reading book. And I realized after I said it that I hope that that wasn't offensive in some way because the old-fashioned part. But to me, that was one of the really exciting things about it because each of the essays is dedicated to a sentence and he just takes the time to sort of close read each of these sentences. And it's such a smart and lovely way to spend your time. Yes. Yeah, but he also takes license to go far out there and, and talk about lots of other things too. And so it's not it's not just, you know, close reading and then sentence diagramming. It's also, you know, their essays on, on many other aspects of these writers' lives and the way their work was received and kind of almost breaking down some myths ab- about them as well. It's an interesting selection of, of writers that he chose. I can't remember exactly how many sentences there are. I think it's somewhere around the 27, 30 mark, but um, I appreciated, of course, a lot of his choices were, were writers that I'm also a huge fan of. So fanning out upon fanning out, just reading this book and getting to talk to Brian. All right, let's get to it. Great. We have Brian Dillon joining us today. Brian is a celebrated essayist and writer. He's the author of many books, including Essayism, The Great Explosion, Objects in This Mirror, and In the Dark Room. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, The London Review of Books, and many other publications. He is also the UK editor of Cabinet Magazine, and he teaches creative writing at Queen Mary University of London. His latest book is a collection of essays called Suppose a Sentence. Each essay is dedicated to a sentence, some beloved, some confounding, and some both. A few are iconic and some are really quite obscure, but all are compelling in particular ways. And in many ways, when I was reading it, I thought, oh my gosh, a good old-fashioned close reading for me. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. It's very, very nice to talk to you. So we were thinking we'd start off with just a reading from your introduction if you don't mind. Absolutely. So this is, this is in fact the opening sentence of the introduction. The introduction is called Sensibility as Structure. This sentence is partly my attempt to do something a little bit like a sentence of Donald Bartelme's and a little bit like a sentence of William Gass, both of whom are kind of hovering around the introduction. Here we go. Or maybe a short sentence after all, a fragment, in fact, a simple cry of pain or pleasure, or succession of same, of the same cries, that is, compounded and spoken at the last, in extremis, or another sort of beast entirely, whose unmeaning cry is just an overture, before the sentence sets in distinguished motion its several parallel clauses, as though it were a creature with at least four legs. An animal, says Emerson. So slowly but deliberately intent on its progress, so stately in its procession, so lavish in attention to the world it passes through, so exacting in the concentration it demands in turn that, what? Here already the sentence swerves, and although you are sure you've caught the sense, the shape has begun to elude you, as if the animal in question were squirming or shaking itself loose of your grip or turning to bite you and then take off against all entreaties into a mist of metaphor, where you must follow closing the gate of this punctuation mark behind you. And on the other side, everything is both less certain and suddenly, swimmingly, closer at hand. The sentence stops and looks around and starts comparing itself to the action of a drug, to the light-sucking lens of a camera or the slow apparition of an image, let's say a face, on photographic paper, to festive decorations enchained around a church or a storm speeding across the lake towards the place where its writer is sitting, or, or, or the sentence, which considers itself very modern, has grown tired of such figural adventures, not to speak of the antiquary's accumulation of clauses and subclauses, so that you start to notice 
start to notice certain acts of repetition. Repetition, but also interruption that give the sentence a faceted, crystalline quality it will always ever after possess. Whether it wants to talk about sickness and health, about the sunlight outside Rome, a New York afternoon, a white boy who wants to be black, or the disappearing sun in daytime, even if it's short, even if it's long, even, especially, if it still aspires to its old elegance, the lofty periods, the plush vocabulary, on which subject, by the way, the sentence has been taking notes, a sample from the archive. Slumgullion, mandrilled, grieved, eidetic, sorisine, macula, flimmering, glop, exorb, chthonic, brumus, moil, ort, flygolding, clamus. And keeping tabs in case these riches come in useful, because who can say what the sentence will need or want in the future? What expansions or contractions it may endure or enjoy, what knowledge need to muster and deploy, whose speech to steal and celebrate, where to be heard, the rhythms it needs to live, to live and let slip your overly attentive attention, interesting itself in things and bodies and abstractions that you no longer recognize and whose names and outlines you will have to entrust to the slippery sentence itself, which it turns out knows more than you do knows when to seize on and worry the world and when to let go, as it's doing now, and go skittering away from you, its maker and not its keeper, beating the bounds of its invisible domain. Thank you so much. I love that opening because it's a sentence, of course, about many of the sentences that you include in the text. And I think it alerts the reader already to you know, what you're interested in and how you're thinking of a sentence and what a single sentence can do. And that's a very long sentence that you start with, that you composed. I wanted to start by talking about the kind of sentences that you were drawn to here in the book. I think we're all familiar with books of quotations. And you mentioned also the Arcades Project, Benjamin's attempt to collect these fragments. And this book is not that and the sentences that you choose aren't always so clean and tidy and aren't always so elegant. Sometimes, yeah, as Medea mentioned in the intro, they confound you and you actually question them. It doesn't seem like they all work so well. So talk about beyond the writers that you wanted to write about, you know, if there was a characteristic in a lot of these sentences that you chose. I'm not sure, it's a really good question, but I'm not sure that I chose a characteristic or that really that I knew what I was setting out to do when I started the book. I knew a little bit like the sentence that I've just read, writing this was an attempt to kind of fix certain things in my mind or to make certain points about how I think about sentences and what I might want from them. I think one of the things that I was trying to do in choosing the sentences was to follow a kind of train of thought that I'd had in my previous book, Essayism, which is about essays and in many ways about what I hope to get or want to get from the essays and essayists that I love. And what I found in choosing these sentences was that in a way I was going for the same thing, which is a kind of combination of well-madeness of a certain kind of contained sentence or utterance. And on the other hand, this kind of tendency to fall apart, to explode, to just kind of disintegrate under my gaze or in my hands. Some of the sentences have the kind of, I suppose, satisfactions that you might want from a kind of classically formed or sculpted utterance. But you're absolutely right. Many or possibly most of them really don't. And that was, I suppose, what's really exciting to me was to try to not to choose, but just to kind of follow a sort of sense of affinity that I had for artifacts that were coming apart at the seams. And then to kind of go on a little sort of adventure in each piece, in each essay, inside of that confusing kind of territory. The book goes in chronological order, according to when each sentence was published or appeared in, in some variety or in some guise. And you start with a quote by Shakespeare from Hamlet, which one of the things I was thinking when I said iconic was it's just three O's or four O's. And what struck me is that it's a very fun place to begin in a way because it could be completely ungenerative. 
what does one make of four O's at the end of a death scene? But you find it, you actually do find it generative. And so I wanted to ask you how you might approach something like that and really why, in a way, like why why begin with something so impenetrable? And I mean, it's O's, they're sort of penetrable in a, in a certain visual way, but sort of impenetrable in a way. Well, funnily enough, I had been thinking about that sentence in a visual way to begin mm. with. I had been reminded of it. I'd always liked it. I've always liked those moments in Shakespeare where he repeats words. The O-O-O happens in many of the plays. It happens in Macbeth. It happens in Lear. But there are all of these instances where words simply get repeated. King Lear says, I think it's five no's. No, 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 no. And I've always liked those. And I was reminded of them when I was writing a very short essay for some artists in Ireland. And I was thinking about circles in their work. And it suddenly popped into my mind, this succession of O's. It hung around uh, the back of my mind as I was beginning to write the sentence book. I suddenly thought, yes, of course, that's the Shakespeare sentence. If there should or has to be a Shakespeare sentence, then it has to be a final sentence. You know, it has this mm. kind of punctual quality at the end of Hamlet. It's only in one of the texts of Hamlet. It's not in every edition that you will read. And then to ask myself, well, what do I do with it? And why am I so attracted to the sound of it, the look of it, and the repetition? And of course, those are exactly the things that are interesting about it. Once you begin to think about the repetition and think about the O, the O reminds you of another phrase in Shakespeare, this little O, the earth, which is also a vision of the globe theatre and so on. So it seemed like, although there's almost nothing there, it seemed like a moment that might kind of ramify through the rest of the book. And we might come back to this, but it actually ends at the very end of the book and it was completely unexpected. Seeing the chronological order of the sentences that you chose and some of the earlier sentences are so unwieldy. And you talk about this that I think it was maybe in the John Dunn sentence that later when it was edited, for publication, it was broken up into, you know, it's one sentence and it was broken up into multiple sentences. I hadn't known of the Ciceroian period versus the Senecan period in English. Do you think as you progress through the sentences that we see the idea of what a sentence could be changed, that the sentences start long and they grow short, they you know start with so many clauses and they kind of tighten over time? Or did you notice a difference in time period? There are, I suppose, kind of numerous sort of slightly competing narratives about what happens to the sentence in the history of English. And one of them definitely has to do with a move from the kind of hierarchical, absolutely sort of structured sentence that is able to contain many, many subclauses and to keep all of those in a kind of logical order or hierarchy, which is essentially, as I understand it, you know, I'm not a rhetorician, but as I understand it in terms of a history of rhetoric, that's the Ciceronian sentence. And one of the things that happens in, it, in English in the 17th century is what you get in Dunn, the Senecan sentence that is much more fragmented, that's able to make kind of leaps from one clause to another, or that can feel sometimes as if it's throwing numerous sentences together which is why some editions of that done sentence actually separate things out and turn them into discrete statements or sentences. I was interested in a way in kind of reflecting that history that some of the earlier sentences are kind of rather labyrinthine. Thomas de Quincey is in there. By the time we get to the 19th century, John Ruskin is there too. But actually the Victorian sentences maybe are a good example. I was really interested in picking that apart and sort of exploding that idea that somehow the 19th century sentence is this kind of complexly woven and hierarchical, logical, but kind of unwieldy entity. So I chose from Charlotte Bronte, absolutely the shortest sentence that I could find. It's three words, the drug wrought, and it's in Villette. But on the other hand, I think I quote Annie Dillard at some point talking about people like Ruskin and De Quincey. And she says, what we think of as these very overly confident, kind of orotund Victorian sentences are really monsters. They're these strange, baggy things that don't often make sense. And sometimes I suppose we still, I still as a reader, find 
the sentence, the long sentence of the 17th century, which is very different from the long sentence of the 19th century, kind of unwieldy and difficult, but they're actually sort of disasters a lot of the time. They're falling apart, is kind of Dillard's point. But that's part of the point. They have a kind of like violence about them that's very much at odds with our sense of the kind of, you know, gentlemanly, rhetorically complex sentence. So I guess I was interested in kind of finding sometimes examples that seemed punctual, they seemed of their moment, and at other points, sentences that just seemed to leap out of their history, out of their historical moment and do something really strange. I love the way you refer to punctuation in the book, you know, that it's a hinge, that it's a gate that closes, it's very material. But does that punctuation and the use of punctuation has anything to do with the way sentences have kind of shaped over time as well that we use, you know, you have this example with De Quincey with the little commas before the dashes, which no one uses now. For a book about sentences, you don't geek out too much about punctuation in the book, but, you know, I'm sure you must have thought about that as well. Yeah, I think I'm attracted to eccentric punctuation is one of the things that I realized as I was writing the book. And I don't have very strong feelings about punctuation marks. I think that some people do, some writers do. A lot of writers historically have been allergic to the semicolon. Samuel Beckett somewhere makes very disparaging remarks about the semicolon. I think I probably like, you know, this is a book about stuff that I like at some level, at some sort of quite naive level. I think I like eccentricities of punctuation. So in trying to describe something like the De Quincey sentence that includes, as you say, the comma dash, which is mostly now defunct. I was really interested in how do you describe the effect of this as a reader? I'm still unsure what the comma dash does that might be different if it is different at all from simply the dash. But it has, again, as you said, a sort of materiality on the page that's kind of briefly fascinating. And so sometimes these things feel or sound or look like hinges or gates. I think of the comma dash as like some kind of thorny sort of weapon in the middle of the sentence. So just trying to get, I suppose, to that kind of material level of reading, of the way that things kind of catch the eye or the ear, is something that I realized as I was writing was something I was trying really hard to grasp in each of the pieces. You mentioned yourself as a reader, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about that, because I think much of the book is also sort of dictated by the kind of reader that you are, not just the kind of essayist that you are. And I wanted to hear more about what kind of reader you are. How are you approaching done, let's say, or how do you reapproach it? Or how are you approaching? So one of the really fun, I would say one of the fun pieces in the book is a Joan Didion sentence that's in fact a caption from a 1960s issue of Vogue. You sort of do an almost investigative report on it. And I think that takes a very particular kind of reader to even notice something like that. So would you just tell us about maybe your life as a reader? That's perhaps too long of an answer, but feel free, feel free to expound. I think what my life as a reader is kind of a nicely broad way of putting it. So if you think about Dunn, for example, in some of the cases, I'm approaching these writers and these texts as a kind of fascinated amateur. My background is in literature and philosophy, but in terms of literature, very much more in terms of modernist, mostly 20th century work is like my my history as a grad student or whatever. So when I come to somebody like Don or Thomas Brown, it's almost like, you know, I'm thinking that in another life, you know, but for the grace of God there, I might have been an early modern scholar or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I have a kind of naive attachment, I think, and enthusiasm for some of those texts. When it comes to something like the Didion, I mean, in some ways, the Didion is my favorite. You know, it was, I'm glad it seems fun to read because it was fun to write and research. Of course, and especially now that there's yet another new collection of old Didion has in fact just come out, we're constantly reminded of the perfection of Didion's style. And I've written pieces that repeat that cliche about Didion. The sense of her writing as so pointed, but polished, a kind of a spiky elegance, you know, this combination of something that's kind of thrusting and polemical and at the same time, perfectly well-made and so on. How do you get out of that set of cliches when it comes to Didion? Somehow I hit on this kind of train of a caption that she had written in her early days at Vogue for a photograph or for a set of photographs for a feature on Dennis Hopper. 
And she had later quoted her own caption in 1978, writing an introduction to one of her books. And I thought, I've got to find that issue of Vogue. I've got to read all of these captions. And so it was a kind of geeky research project. I didn't think I was going to hit on the perfect Didion sentence to write about it. I just went on eBay and bought the August 1965 issue of US Vogue. And there it was, the sentence, except it wasn't the sentence. It was a different sentence. She'd rewritten it. She'd rewritten it like 13 years later. She'd improved upon it. And so that as a story, as a narrative about a sentence, that just seemed utterly compelling. And maybe that's a version of what sometimes the kind of reader that I might be, just getting hung up on those details and seeing where that detail might lead you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Brian Dillon about his new book, Suppose a Sentence. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Claudio Lumnitz back on the line with us. He is a professor of anthropology at Columbia University and the author, most recently, of the book Nuestra America, My Family in the Vertigo of Translation, and he's here to recommend a book. Claudio, what book will you recommend? Hi, I'm going to be recommending an anthropology book, of all things, which is an odd thing to recommend, I know, but that's what I've been reading, and actually I'm kind of happy to recommend this one. It's a book by David Graeber and Marshall Sollins, and some of you knew David Graeber. He, he passed away last year at a relatively young age, sadly. Marshall Sollins, of course, a great anthropologist who fortunately is still with us, live and well. But uh, the book is called On Kings. It was published mm. by the University of Chicago Press. And it's a book about kingship. And uh, I don't think most people, most of us aren't, anymore um, used to reading anthropology books that actually range through a number of different societies, give you a sense of things from all kinds of places, and think about an issue that has to do, that's really quite relevant for all of us, which is the problem of sovereignty. Mm. So it's quite an amazing book, actually. Um, if you have the, you know, the, the stamina and gumption to sort of read an academic book. It's actually very well written. It is an academic book, but it has a contribution to make. And of course, I have to ask, since we just laid rest to a presidency that people often compared to a wannabe king, um, <laughs> if the book made you reflect at all on the Trump years. It did a little bit, I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, I, because... The thing about the book that's really wonderful is that it separates out the problem of sovereignty, uh, which is the source of the power of kings, which they say is always a divine source. For them, the king uh, is an imitation of a god. And one of the really surprising and I think convincing things about this book is that they argue that societies that, don't, that didn't have a state, uh, that didn't have kings, nevertheless had relations of sovereignty with, you know, sort of God, spirits, they call them kind of anthropomorphic or, uh, you know, persons. And so they claim, I think very convincingly, with a lot of evidence, that in fact, it's that the kings are always kind of imitating gods and not the other way around, which is what we usually think. We usually think of, king, you know, gods as kind of an imitation of kings. We think of whatever, Jesus as a king or the father, the, you know, God the, as a patriarch. But they argue that it's the other way around, that kings take their sovereignty from some kind of outside source, and the society is always trying to rein it in and uh, to bureaucratize it or ritualize it. So when you see something like Trump, who clearly had these gestures to do with uh, the ability to destroy, the ability to destroy is key to the sovereignty of the king. The king manifests this, his power, and I say his because usually they're, they're men, but not always, manifests his power through a destructive capacity, not a constructive capacity. And I think we saw that with Trump. There's like his alleged you know, effort to, so, quote, to drain the swamp 
was in fact a destructive thing. You know, he could get rid of, you know, most of the State Department, fire, you know, half of the people in the judiciary branch at will, have his income taxes uh, spared from any kind of scrutiny, have a hotel that was used. In other words, questions of corruption with his hotels in Washington and elsewhere and Mar-a-Lago. All these things he could do as a show of independent power. And in the end, of course, that culminated, I think, in the attempted coup. <sighs> yeah. Luckily, that's over. Which, which, fortunately, we seem to have dodged that bullet. <laughs> but yes, I, I think that, that Trump's attitudes were, I mean, the reason why the image of a king comes up is because he was constantly acting out as someone who could not be reined in by any, anyone, including people in his own party. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, sounds like a great time to read the book. Um, could you tell us the title again and the authors? Yes. The title of the book is On Kings, and the authors are David Graeber and Marshall Sollins, two really great anthropologists. It was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2017. Thank you so much, Claudio, for coming back. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Claudio Lemnitz. His newest book is Nuestra America, My Family in the Vertigo of Translation. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Brian Dillon, author of Suppose a Sentence. I also wonder, you know, when you're reading a book, I was so interested to see that the sentence that you took from Villette, because I love Villette. I think I recommend Villette to everybody up and down because I think it's one of the best Bronte books. And there's so many weird sentences in Villette. Weird where Lucy Snow, so Lucy Snow is the, is the main character, where she's almost, she's almost like an alien landed to earth who doesn't quite understand what certain objects are. And it begins with her not quite understanding what a crib is and what it's there for, which I thought for a young girl or a young woman is a very very interesting way to start. So there's many things that when I read the book, you just, you know, I think when you're reading, you get a thrill as a reader. That's that that's sort of the best way to describe it, I think, for me personally, affectively at least, what happens. So I'm also curious, what, what thrills you? What what do you, when you're reading, what do you find sort of as, as a little thrill when, you, when you've caught it or when you've read it? I think it might be it's it's so interesting that you point to those moments in in Lucy Snow's narrative where she seems not to understand things because mm -hmm. Lucy Snow is also you know she's one of the greatest unreliable narrators of uh, of the 19th century she's she spends more or less the entire novel telling us that she doesn't know things that she clearly at some level does know but the performance of her perplexity is one of the things that I find really compelling in that mm. book. And maybe that's something that links a lot of the sentences that, that I've included here. The performance of, of perplexity, it's something to do with finding an elegantly shaped or precise or pointed or accurate way of describing a state of confusion, of not knowing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's a particular thrill. It might not be the only thrill that I'm after as a reader. It might be hard to keep finding that thrill time, time and again. But I think that it might be one of the things that kind of catches my ear is that sense that a sentence, and of course, it wouldn't only happen in sentences. It, it will happen in larger units of writing. In fact, entire books may be precisely this, right? Mm -hmm. But it might be one of those, those things that, that, that excites me. The moment where you find that somebody is able to dredge from a state of confusion or perplexity, a really precise formulation of that, that somehow leaves you as a reader feeling the same, the same confusion. I'm not sure if that makes sense in itself. I think it does. Yeah. Yes. And, and speaking of confusion, I wanted to talk about the Gertrude Stein sentence you chose and just Stein in general seems to be, to me in this book, the complete outlier that um, the book is so much in a way about style. I mean, it is about style. And I think uh, for me reading, I thought, you know, it seems like a sentence traces reality, you know, that the, a stylist is able to trace a contour of something with language and, and present it 
you know, as a reflection then of the thing. But that seems like, okay, that's what great writers do. I don't know if you want to read, you know, her sentence or talk about its difference from, from other stylists in, in the, in the, that you've chosen to write about. Maybe it would be nice to hear the sentence. Here is Stein, um, who also gives my book its title, Suppose a Sentence. Supposing a certain time selected is assured, suppose it is even necessary, suppose no other extract is permitted and no more handling is needed, suppose the rest of the message is mixed with a very long slender needle, and even if it could be any black border, supposing all this together made a dress and suppose it was actual, suppose the mean way to state it was occasional, if you suppose this in August and even more melodiously, if you suppose this even in the necessary incident of there certainly being no middle in summer and winter, suppose this and an elegant settlement, a very elegant settlement is more than of consequence, it is not final and sufficient and substituted. So I completely see what you mean when you say that Stein is at odds uh, with all of the other great stylists uh, in the book, except I also sort of don't. I think that in a way, she's the heart of the book, which is one reason that that I was happy to find a, a title in that phrase, suppose a sentence, because I think that at some level, Stein is doing exactly what you describe a great stylist doing. She is capturing something of, of reality. She's just capturing it in such a very differently precise fashion. And one of the things that I talk about in, at the beginning of the, the Stein piece is how I have, I suspect, and Stein scholars and specialists would know in a way that I don't yet, but I suspect that that phrase, suppose a sentence, and her constant use of the, of the word suppose comes from her training in logic. It's a moment of kind of, of positing, positing a state of affairs. And maybe her version of a precision about reality is the constant positing of different versions of it, you know, from, from different directions, to use a kind of cliche about Stein, that she, that, that she has a kind of, you know, cubist approach to, to things, to, to objects, to the, to the world. So it's funny, I, I don't see her as, as at odds. I see her as, as this kind of prismatic version of something that's happening in in John Ruskin or in, in uh, De Quincey or in George Eliot. Eliot is, is the great writer of the 19th century of multiple perspectives, of seeing things from every angle at the same time. She has this amazing image, which is not the one that I talk about in, in Middlemarch, but this image of, of the pier glass, which is a mirror, a curved mirror. And it's covered in scratches. And the mirror is, is an image for the reality, the, the society, society that she's trying to, to portray in, uh, in the book and the, the perspectives of so many different characters. If you look at the mirror from one angle, from one perspective, you see an entirely different world from somebody who's looking at it from another direction. And that seems to me not, not a million miles from uh, what Gertrude Stein's prose is doing. Yeah, I, I think it was because I... I would never be able to place the originating thing that she is trying to capture in language. Um, and that's why, but I, but I also totally see what you're saying. And it's a very interesting exercise and abstraction of, I'm not sure, yes, where, where these, you know, supposings are coming from exactly, but um, I'm, I'm happy to go along and, and imagine. And in that way, I also wondered, you know, you don't, you stay away from poetry I guess we could count this Stein and there, you know, you have Anne Carson in the book, but um, you stay away from poetry for the most part. So I wondered if you draw a, a big distinction between the line versus the sentence. Yeah, I'm not sure that I do. And in a way I was expecting, uh, when I set out to write the book, I was expecting more poetry. As you say, there are poets in it. So uh, Dunn is there and Anne Carson is there and Anne Boyer ends the book. There's a, a passage in one of uh, Virginia Woolf's letters. I think it's a letter to Vanessa Bell. She says, Vanessa, please tell me what is the difference between prose and poetry? Because she doesn't know. I wonder, having written the book and, and having some readers point out that there's not much poetry in it, that they were expecting me to, to focus on, 
on poets in the kind of detail that I do uh, with prose. I wonder if at, at some level what I'm doing is, is treating prose as I might treat poetry, or it's hard to describe this without kind of falling into to sort of very mushy stuff about poetic prose, right? But there is something that I'm interested in that has to do with sound and has to do with figurative language that I think probably in most cases uh, uh, in the book is, I am reading things as, as if there isn't a distinction between poetry and prose. And I also wondered if it was about the container, you know, excising these sentences of when you talk about collage and, and of course it puts a, it puts a ton of stress on the sentence you've chosen, but, you know, in situ, the sentence is surrounded by other sentences and um, it's, it, it doesn't have that kind of uh, starkness that a poem might have, you know, you, you, you've been the person to zoom in on this sentence that is surrounded by other sentences, which kind of is a poem does that for you in a lot of ways. I think at some level that there's a kind of arbitrariness about how I've chosen these sentences and how I've arranged them. So there's a chronological arrangement, of course, but the choice seems somehow like the wrong word to use. And I wonder if it feels for me, I'm not an artist, but I, I write a lot about art and I, I think a lot about photography, especially, and about I've thought about photomontage and collage as, as forms. I wonder if it feels a little bit more like um, what an artist or certain poets, especially contemporary poets, might do with found objects, with found text. I wouldn't want to pretend that what I've done in this book has anything like the kind of complexity of, let's say, you know, a Susan Howe poem. But I, I feel a kind of affinity, I suppose, for, for certain kinds of poetic practice. So one of the things that we or that Kate brought up earlier that also struck me while I was reading the book is that some of these some of the sentences you choose are deal very much with perspective actually which is the Maeve Brennan in particular which actually I think does read like a line from a poem unlike some of the other sentences in in the book because it is so interestingly almost invertedly constructed but those the Beckett too and one of the things that I was curious about is just the way that in, in which you approach certain thoughts about perspective or certain ideas about perspective and why you are interested in it. I mean, aside from it being, you know, sort of a fundamental <laughs> way of reading literature and understanding certain, um, uh, certain texts, but what is it about perspective that interests you? This is so interesting because it's something that I hadn't realized about the book until I finished writing it or until I'd actually started to have conversations like this uh, about it. And some of those kinds of strands that have to do, they're not exactly thematic, but they have to do with certain kinds of structures that that recur. So some people have pointed out that quite a lot of the book is, is made up of quotations from texts that were originally or could well be oral, that they could have a kind of oral delivery. And that level of kind of performance, I, I hadn't quite noticed. And this question of perspective is a, is a bit similar, but I, I wonder if it might have to do with a kind of attraction to a sort of logical switching of perspectives as much as visual. So the, the Maeve Brennan sentence that, that, that you mentioned, which is this extraordinary, uh, perhaps we should hear it, perhaps we should hear that, yeah. um, because it, it, it's such a... It's sort of such a beautiful instance um, of uh, an observation turning around on itself or the character who's being described, her perspective turning around. There's a different shift in perspective, which is from, from the author towards the reader. We should just hear it. It's, it's, it's much more complex than I can describe. Singular perspective the lady had as she looked about the room in which nothing was real except her blue eyes. I mean, what an amazing sentence to to read in a you know in in, in the kind of you know front front section of the New Yorker in uh, in the mid nineteen sixties. Singular perspective the lady had as she looked about the room in which nothing was real except her blue eyes. Um, and I guess what's I don't know if you studied Latin as a uh, as only a, briefly. Well, it's it sounds like a very bad Latin translation. I mean, it's it's what I would have done, you know, to us where you're just. You're just you're just gathering the data <laughs> and you're putting it on the page. So it, 
also linking back to this conversation about Cicero and Seneca, where it's like somehow Maeve Brennan in the beginning pages of New Yorker is also sort of tied in with these old rhetoricians and and an old, uh, perhaps even Latinate way of writing certain sense, maybe almost like Milton, Milton-esque, where the things are sort of inverted and placed at different parts of the sentence. I'm sorry to interrupt you, go ahead. No, that, that's completely fascinating. And I hadn't thought about that sentence in that way, but of course it, it, it makes perfect sense. That sense that a, that a sentence is a kind of whirling kind of vortex that, that could be arrested at any point, right? And that, you know, that, that sentence, that Brennan sentence is so perfectly wrought in terms of how it takes you from looking at this woman who's in a restaurant in the afternoon. You know, Maeve Brennan is always in a restaurant at the, in, in, in the middle of the afternoon, uh, watching other, other middle-aged women and wondering about their lives. And she looks at this character who's looking around the room. She's looking for her husband. And the room is looking back at her. And we as the readers are looking at her. But are we seeing her? It's, the interplay of gazes is, is just so complex and, and intense. And in some respects, that's... It's almost a kind of model for what a sentence might be in itself, that that it has all of these possible perspectives, possible starting points, possible endings. The Latinate sentence, or at least my dim recollection of my study of uh, of Latin as a, in my early teens, that sense that it that in a Latin sentence you can move things around and and you can maintain this kind of gr- grammatical uh, logic, but the elements can shift in in so many different directions. You can start in one place and end in another or vice versa, etc. So that maybe some of a sentence like that, maybe this is, goes back to, to the kind of fundamentals of your question about perspective. It's something again about the kind of arbitrariness of you know, the point at which a writer arrests the sentence that feels mm-hmm. constantly in, in motion. And that's something that I don't talk about in the book at all, but but hopefully is kind of obvious. These sentences could just as easily have been completely different sentences, you know, containing the same elements, containing the same objects as words or images or phrases, but made entirely differently. In the book, you have a essay on Roland Barthes. And I think in there you say, you know, without Barthes, you'd never be able to write. I'm sure you say it better than that. But um, of course, writers need to read often, or many writers are catapulted into writing through reading. And it's also true in a a literal way in this book that these are all prompts that you've taken all these sentences to generate writing that through, in a very, very literal way through reading, um, you're able to write. So I I just thought we could talk um, about, you know, the relationship to you between reading and writing and finding permission and freedom in someone else like Bart or other other writers, Elizabeth Hardwick, I think, is someone else you say who who's, gives you the ability to write. Yeah, I think that there are different versions of, of that. One of them is this sense that I suppose, and I, I think I do talk about this in the, uh, in the book or have elsewhere, that um, that there are certain writers whose voices are always kind of somehow just just kind of murmuring away as I'm writing or thinking about what I might uh, write. And Bart is one of those. I read Bart when I first when I was a, a teenager. I hadn't the faintest idea. And I went back to him about a year later when I was about 16 and thought, this, this is it. I've, I've, I've found the writer uh, for me. And he still kind of hovers around. And Hardwick was a, was a much later discovery, only a decade or so uh, ago. Um, and similarly, there's something to do with voice and the kind of the the rhythms and the the precision but weirdness of word choices and and punctuation and and so on. So there's there's that kind of prompt, you know, which which I suppose is, you know, the in the theatrical sense, the the, the prompter is always there, you know, ready ready to kind of give you your your lines. And then there's a different kind of prompt, which is the much more sort of arbitrary found text or found object or image or voice or situation that somehow sparks something different, something more unexpected in writing. And I guess uh, that's one of the things I wanted this book to do was was to kind of surprise me. So each sentence, which I, I decided on the sentences or included the sentences, 
without very much thought. So if I've, I decided that if I wrote a sentence in, in my notebook, then I had to write about it. And I would not give myself very much time to, to think about whether it was the right sentence or not. And I realized as I went on that this was something that I'd been sort of quite familiar with in other contexts. So I'm, a, I'm an editor for a cabinet magazine where we have a long history of asking writers and artists and intellectuals to respond to a prompt. And it might be an object or it might be a, a, an image. Wayne Kestenbaum uh, did a, a long series of amazing essays um, in response to photographs that, that we'd asked him to write about. And I had that at the back of my mind, I suppose, with this book as well. Just the sheer thrill of, of being given one thing to respond to um, is, is always really exciting to, to me as a writer, to, to take away the element of, uh, of choice or desire or decision um, when somebody says, here's your exercise for today. Um, and you just have to jump in and, and do something. I'm glad that you bring up being an editor because, you know, not to be confrontational about it, but I, but I, I think there's something in the book where that puts editors in a really uncomfortable position, which is, yes, a sentence can be different than what it is. Oftentimes, it in fact should be different, speaking personally. <laughs> um, and so you discuss Elizabeth Elizabeth Bowen, for example, who I, I agree, I read I read that sentence and I thought, this could use some editing. <laughs> use some editing. But you know, that there's also obviously something about your book that aims to preserve the imperfect or the sort of, you know, the Vir Virginia Woolf, for example, the um, from uh, On Being Ill, it's, I was shocked at how many mixed metaphors there were that generally, again, if if I were reading it or if I had gotten an essay like that, I would say, you know, let's, we got to stick with one. We can't have 20 in here. This is embarrassing. But that there's, there is something worth preserving there. How do you approach that from the point of view of a person who does, in fact, often probably have to change some sentences, but who may still value the sort of imperfection that you get oftentimes in this book? I think I, I was um, in some cases, um, and Bowen is one, so uh, Bowen very much hung on to the awkwardness, or as she would put it, the awkwardnesses, that, that's a really kind of, you know, Bowen-ish kind of word to, to use in her own prose. And she she fought constantly with, with editors uh, about this. Um, and there are other instances in the book. Wolf is one. Uh, she wrote the essay on being ill uh, for T.S. Eliot, uh, for the New Criterion um, journal or, or magazine. Um, and she thought it was kind of a mess. I think that Eliot might have concurred a little bit. And so in some cases, there are these relationships with, with editors that are kind of hovering, ghosting the sentence that I've chosen. I wanted to make it more or less clear where it mattered that this sentence was one version of a number of possibilities. So not only am I kind of hoping to hang on to a kind of imperfection, but I'm also some of the time pointing out that this imperfect thing was maybe the last version, the supposedly perfect version, or it's an earlier kind of draft instance, or it's something that in the case of the Beckett one, for example, was never published or performed uh, at the time. So I hope that I kind of hung on to that sense that as a writer or as an editor, nothing's ever actually finished, right? <laughs> things, things are always, you know, the, the, there's a deadline and, and, and you do your best, right? But I hope there is a kind of sense in, in the book that, that these sentences also relied on other people, you know, that there, there were editors lurking, hovering, making these things slightly more, I think probably in most cases, more polished rather than less. I suppose that one of the things you sometimes want to do as an editor is, is to, to botch things a little bit. I, I think they're often botched when I receive them, but maybe that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's just me. I'm just kidding. Many things are perfect. Brian, this seems like from essayism, your previous book to this book, this has been a really great model for you. And I wonder um, if you're going to continue in this mode. I realized when I finished the book that essayism and suppose a sentence were uh, the first two parts of a trilogy. And I'm working on the third one right now. And it's, it's a book called Affinities. And it's not about writers. It's not about language. It's entirely about images. 
It's mostly about photography. And I think it's a book about a little bit like the sentence book. It's about things that I'm attracted to or images that I've been looking at for a long time. But I think it's kind of a book about the ways that images and materials dissolve into each other, morph into each other. It's somehow a book about disintegration. So maybe it is, again, a kind of book about form. But that's it. It's it, it's a trilogy. This is, it's together, hopefully they, they if, if not make some kind of statement about what form or style might mean now. They're, they're, they're at least a kind of subjective, I don't know, intervention of some kind together. Um, and then I move on, I hope, um, and start writing again about, you know, what we might call life or the world outside of books and pictures. It seems like a, you know, it, it, I, something I thought um, reading this and reading your introduction is that collecting sentences, you've done it forever. It's kind of this age old practice. And then at the same time, you know, we live in a, a world where text images are very fragmented and kind of come one after the other, you know? Um, uh, so it seems, you know, both ancient and incredibly contemporary. And um, I wonder if that occurred to you. It occurred to me right at the outset. And I realized that if if I was to write this book, I kind of had to ignore the issue and allow the book to just kind of take its own form and then for readers to to decide for themselves how it might fit in a contemporary moment of proliferation of and the speed of how we read and and how we look so in a way i kind of i, I sort of stepped back from the problem mm. well it's nice to slow down too and even though we're, we're used to the single sentence at, at this point um we're not always used to such consideration of it. So thank you so much for that. And um, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. We've been speaking with Brian Dillon, author of Suppose a Sentence. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.